I appreciated Danny's sermon last weekend for a lot of reasons, but one of the prayers on my heart recently has been that God would um, spark in us uh, something that we can't just manufacture, that God would spark in us a passion for evangelism, for simply telling others about the hope of Jesus Christ. As we grow deeper in our knowledge and love of God, that should create in us a desire to get others in on that. We really dug into this idea at D Group on Wednesday, and I just encourage you to identify someone in your life uh, for whom you can be intentionally praying and looking for ways to share the love of Jesus. I think uh, we need to remind it on occasion that God is far more willing to save than we are to share. This morning, we are back in Ephesians. In our text, Paul begins to pray, but very quickly, he stops. Imagine this scenario. You're with someone, or you're writing a letter to someone, but let's just say you're with them. It makes a little more sense for my little metaphor, so just roll with it. You're with someone, and you're going to pray for them, and then you begin to pray, but then you remember that as you're beginning to pray, there are like three or four things you need to remind them to help frame that prayer, to uh, help that prayer make sense. They're working on the sound, so we'll be fine. There are a few things that you need to remind them so that that prayer can make sense. So Paul begins to pray in our text this morning, but very quickly, he stops. He has some words to kind of frame that prayer, to set that prayer up. These 13 verses are just that. They are a digression before prayer. Now, it's an informative and helpful digression. It's a digression of great spiritual significance. Paul is reminding the Ephesians of three important things before he prays for them. Now, he reminds them of these facts before prayer because these facts are of spiritual significance. These facts inform their reception and participation in the prayer that he gives in the hope and expectation that God would warm our hearts with the gospel. We reflect on these three reminders from the apostle before he prays for the Ephesians. First, Paul reminds them of his message. We are reminded of Paul's message. Oh, it's the gospel. It's God's plan for the whole world. Shorthand to the mystery of Christ. We'll talk about it in a moment. We're reminded of Paul's message. Second, we're reminded of Paul's mission. Paul's mission is to take that message and make it plain, to proclaim it to the Gentiles, to make this gospel clear and accessible to all people. Paul reminds them of his message. Paul reminds them of his mission. And third, Paul reminds them of his chains. Paul reminds them of his suffering. And that suffering, while it seems to be cause for grief, while it seems to be cause for despair, Paul actually says it is your glory. These chains are your glory. This suffering should lead you to rejoice. Let's look at Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, hold on one second, remember these things. He'll pick up from here in verse 14 with the prayer that will be preached and prayed next Weak. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. When you begin the prayer, I, Paul, a prisoner on your behalf, there might be a few things that you want to clarify. First of all, he begins intentionally. This is a reminder of his chains that we'll talk more about in the third point of the sermon. But if you found out someone was in prison on your behalf, you might be a little bit, uh, I don't know, like upset about it. Oh, you did that for me. You didn't have to do that for me. I, I hate that you're there. You know, if, ever, if you've ever done something or if it's on your reason that someone else is in trouble, it just feels so bad. You know, it's like they're doing this and they did that for me and now they're in trouble and now they got to deal with all those consequences. And I feel so terrible because the reason they're there is me. And so Paul is, is reminding them as he begins this prayer. Yes, I am in prison. Literally, Paul corresponds much with the church from a jail cell where he dictates to someone else. A helpful reminder to remember that the gospel has gone forth against opposition since literally the Bible was written. But let me remind you why I'm in this prison for you. After all, you could be discouraged to think about this, but you need not be. In fact, you must not be. Because allow me to remind you why it's worth it. I assume you know what my life is all about. The Apostle Paul has been let in on something that he is now tasked to let the rest of the world in on. What exactly is it? Let's put it as simply as we can. Paul is making clear the plan of God for the whole world. Paul is making clear the plan of God for the whole world. Now, this plan has been bound up in what he calls here and elsewhere the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Now, this mystery isn't something uh, spooky or, or magical. No, the mystery of Christ broadly is the plan that God has had for the redemption of all things since the very beginning. That this great story of sin entering the world and falling and then redemption and reconciliation being brought wrought and all things being restored, that this plan that God has always had was always going to go forth 
through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is a mystery because for so long, so many people had no idea. The prophets of old saw shadows and understood some broad strokes. They faithfully played their role in the unfolding story of God, but, but they did not fully know what God was doing because they didn't fully know who Jesus was. They know of a Messiah, sure, but the scope of his mission will be wider than they could ever imagine. Paul says here that this mystery has not been revealed to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the apostles and prophets by whom? By the Spirit. What is this mystery of Christ specifically? If broadly and generally it's sort of Christ is like the key to the whole thing, the Rosetta Stone that helps us crack the divine code, right? That we understand the plan of God through the work of Jesus the Christ. What is the mystery of Christ specifically here? Oh, quite simple. The Gentiles, if you're new to church or new to the Bible, Gentiles are just anyone who's not Jewish. That Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. This is the mystery. This is the message that Paul stewards. That in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are together in one body with one future in one promised spirit. That in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile both are reconciled to God and one another. This is the specific point of this text. That yes, they're reconciled to God, but that mystery is not simply a vertical reality. That mystery has horizontal dimensions. And here Paul says specifically that he's stewarding the mystery of Christ, which is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Yes, Jew and Gentile both are reconciled to God, but the gospel also reconciles them to one another. This has been the plan of God from the beginning. That Jew and Gentile would be one in Christ. That God would gather to himself a people from every tribe and tongue, from every corner of this globe. This is the message that changed Paul's life. This is the message for which Paul will give his life in his living and his dying. Why does it matter for us? Well, it's the same message that changes our lives. It's the same message that God has called us to give our lives to in some way. A couple um, prepositional phrases in this passage might help us really apply it in our lives. So if you're an underliner, if you're a note taker, I would just maybe write in Christ and then second through the gospel. In Christ and through the gospel. So the, 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 the Gentiles, so the non-Jews who have been sort of strangers to the promises of the Old Testament in some way uh, are now in on all those promises. Yeah. How? How? Well, Paul says, in Christ and through the gospel. In Christ, I think, are two of the most important words we put together in our Christian language. To the, the, that term itself, in Christ, is 
rich with doctrinal meaning. You can spend a lifetime studying simply those two words and only begin to scratch the surface of what they mean. I think it's important to understand that Jesus is not simply the founder of Christianity. Jesus is Christianity. The Christian life is lived in Christ. It's a participation in his life. So to be in Christ implies that at one point you were not in Christ, that you were at one point apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are, Romans 5, 16 says, guilty in sin. We are, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, covered in shame. We are, Romans 1, 18 says, deserving of God's judgment. We are, Ephesians 2 say, under the sway of the devil. We are enemies of God, as James tells us in his fourth chapter. We are separated from God, as Isaiah foretold and the New Testament makes clear. We are enslaved to sin, as Jesus himself tells us in John 8. And we are dead in the transgressions and trespasses in which we once walked. Apart from Christ, we are guilty in sin, covered in shame, deserving of judgment, under the sway of the devil, enemies of God, separated from God, enslaved to sin and dead in our transgressions with no ability to do anything about it. But in Christ, Ephesians 1, 7 says, we are forgiven of our sin. In Christ, Hebrews 12, 2 says, we are cleansed of all shame. In Romans 4, we know we are declared righteous in Christ. We are adopted into God's family, John 1. We are reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5. We are free from the slavery of sin, Romans 6, and we are risen with eternal life. We are guilty in sin, but in Christ we are forgiven of sin. Apart from Christ, we are covered in shame. In Christ, we are cleansed of shame. Apart from Christ, we are deserving of God's judgment, and in Christ, we are declared righteous. Apart from Christ, we are under the sway of the devil, and in Christ, we are victorious over his schemes. Apart from him, we are his enemies, but with him, we are his family. We are dead without him and alive with him. So how do we go from apart from Christ over to in Christ? Because the difference is stark. That's our second prepositional phrases. Help. Through the gospel. Through the gospel. By believing this message that in Christ and through the gospel, Jew and Gentile are in one body. And this Pauline message, this divine message, this gives shape to his mission. In Christ, we have all these spiritual blessings. Apart from Christ, we have none of them. We go from apart from Christ to in Christ through the gospel. This is what Paul's communicating very simply with these two phrases. In Christ and through the gospel. And this message, this gospel message gives shape to Paul's mission. We'll focus our attention in verses 7 through 10 here. Paul's mission is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and make the gospel clear to everyone. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, that sounds like a humble brag, right? I'm just the worst. You know, you're writing the New Testament. I mean, come, come on. right? It sounds like a humble brag, but if you don't remember Paul's story, 
you'll miss out on the reality that this is not a humble brag. This is the confession of a man who is now sort of a saint, but has tried to kill the saints. This is a man who's now spreading the message that he's tried so ferociously to stamp out. We can't forget that Paul was the unlikeliest of apostles. He has made a minister not because he earned it, not because he deserved it, but by the power of God's grace. This is his mission in life. He's reminding the Ephesians of it before he prays for them, I remind us. This is his message, he says. This is his mission. He is called by God to preach to the non-Jews the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is called by God to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what good preaching does, by the way. Yes, good preaching informs. Yes, good preaching instructs. Yes, good preaching teaches. Yes, good preaching is practical. But fundamentally, it is not those things. Fundamentally, it is exaltation. Fundamentally, it is the proclamation of the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is someone opening the word of God to proclaim the glory of God in the Son of God by the power of the Spirit of God. Good preaching exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and invites all who hear to gaze upon his glory and beauty and majesty because that is what spurs on a lifetime of obedience. You will learn how to handle all the practical things that scriptures say that they are sufficient for a life of godliness as we go through the Bible and as you read the Bible and as you pray and think and apply. But if you're not focusing on Christ, all of that application will just be religious lipstick on the dying corpse of your own soul. Good preaching points us to Christ. And good preaching is accessible. If you leave a sermon and say, I didn't understand any of that, either your head was in your phone the entire time, which is entirely possible, or I did not do a good job of communicating what's in this book to you. If you leave and you don't get it, then I have missed the mark. You have missed the mark. Somewhere, someone, we have missed the mark. Paul says his goal is to make the mystery plain. He wants to make it clear. He wants to make it accessible. God does not make the mystery mysterious. Paul makes the mystery plain. He does not obscure it. He does not qualify it with 10,000 qualifications. He makes the content of it plain. In fact, he'll get criticized for this from both Jews and Gentiles. Jews will get mad at him because he's not performing signs and wonders. You're an apostle, man. Do something cool. Do a trick. You know, prove it. Prove your spiritual power like the prophets of old. Call down fire from the heavens so we know you're from God. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, and the Gentiles, they want, they want some good philosophy. They want the best rhetoric, the best speeches, the best talkers, the best thinkers, the, the best intellectuals of the day to make this really intricate argument to him. And he says that 
that would be great, but I, that's not me. Paul says, I didn't come with signs of power. I didn't come with fancy rhetoric. I came with the word of the cross and the message of Christ crucified. And to the world, both the religious and the irreligious, that is foolishness. But friends, the foolishness is the point. As Paul reminds the Corinthians, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And it pleases God through the preaching of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, the proclamation of the mystery made clear, made plain to save sinners. Preaching this message to the Gentiles is Paul's mission. They are his target demographic, so to speak. But, and this is where things get really fun. So for the next five minutes, you're gonna have more fun in the sermon than you've had the entire time, I guarantee it. There is a larger audience watching this whole mission unfold. So Paul's target demographic is the Gentiles. He is sent to the Gentiles to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain the mystery of God, to make sure they understand that you are not um, a halfway citizen on probation amongst the Jews, that you are brothers and sisters, you're in one body and partake of the same, same promised spirit. But look with me in verse 10. For verse 9, and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So in some sense, let's just understand the flow of argument here and we can consider what it could mean. That through the church which is what? Which is the reconciled people of God. Through the church, God is preaching to angels. <laughs> Through the church, God is preaching to some sort of spiritual beings, rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There are some sort of spiritual beings, maybe good ones, maybe evil ones even, that are learning about the wisdom of God as they watch Jew and Gentile become reconciled together. There's a sense in which as the church grows in depth and breadth, as the church grows in their own love of God and as that message spreads around the world, that there are beings who are watching it unfold who are just flabbergasted at every turn. Heavenly beings are, are I told you this was fun, you know. Heavenly beings, in some sense, are, are watching the story of God unfold and are being surprised by what they see. They're watching the story of God unfold and it looks absurd the whole time. The Son of God comes to earth, he dies, he comes back to life. Well, what's going to happen now? Surely this thing will fade out sooner than later. He ascends into heaven. Then the message of who he is and what he's done gets preached and preached and preached. And where it's preached, people believe. And not only do people believe, but new communities begin to form. Communities of people who have been divided along social, ethnic, and religious lines for millennia. 
And these communities begin to love each other and serve each other and love the world and serve the world, love their enemies and serve their enemies. And this message continues to go forth. And they're looking down from the heavens saying, how is this possible? And they're marveling at the manifold wisdom of God. They're seeing a glimpse of the future as they look at the church of the present. That the church is herself a colony of heaven in a country of death. The church herself is to be a picture of what is coming. Of what reconciled and ever-reconciling people look like. Just a secondary small point there. To be reconciled is to be ever-reconciling with one another. In your marriages. In your, well, hopefully you only have one marriage each. But in your marriage, that's a, just a different sermon, you know. Uh, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your workplace, amongst the people in your church, that, that the reconciled people are not uh, sort of one time where just sort of, yeah, you are decisively reconciled in Christ, but to be reconciled is to be ever reconciling. That conflict is inevitable, but the Christian responds with grace and reconciliation. And that as we are living in this way, as this gospel mission goes forth, I, I struggle specifically to think what all of this means, to be completely blunt, but I know it means at least this, that there are, there are beings watching that you have never even thought of. And your life in the wisdom of God and in the plan of God is teaching something to the heavenly beings about the nature of God. Through the church, through me and through you and through our brothers and sisters around the world, there are spiritual beings in heavenly places seeing what our God can do. You didn't have a chance. But God saved you. You were so deep in spiritual apathy and depression, you thought you would never, ever, ever care to pick up your Bible again. But God, but God has warmed your heart even now. Your marriage was an absolute train wreck, but now you are learning to love and sacrifice and serve and honor and cherish one another. Your life was an absolute mess, but God stepped in. And your life itself is a sermon for an audience you do not see. What are the angels watching in your life? Because friends, your story shows off God's wisdom, his power, and his grace. I think this cosmic scope is the hardest to talk about because we don't really have clear categories for it. But the ideas are remarkable. But Paul says this has been God's plan for the very beginning that the redemption and reconciliation of all things would be realized in the work of Jesus Christ. That irreconcilable people would be reconciled and that the heavens would marvel. Look with me in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access. Here we go. Now you can see, sorry, I don't like to editorialize too much while I'm reading, but you know, here we are. 
Now you can see how this is circling back toward prayer. Paul reminds them of his chains, as we'll see in this third point. Paul reminds them of his message. Paul reminds them of his mission, both his target demographic, to use that language, and the audience who's watching it unfold. Not only is it the whole world, but it's a whole dimension of the world that we don't even have very many words to to talk about. But now he's reminding them we can draw near in confidence and with boldness because of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, I ask you, before we pray, friends, I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Please, 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 Ephesians, don't get discouraged. Don't let my chains enslave you. Don't let the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who bow to Artemis discourage you as you seek to obey the one true God. Yeah, I'm a prisoner. And yeah, I'm in prison because of you. But I have to be. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. There's nowhere else I should be. There's nowhere else he could be or would be. Because this message is his life. That the mystery of Christ, the plan of God, hidden for ages past, has now been made known by the Spirit to the prophets and apostles. And Christ they proclaim in all his beauty, all his excellence, so that all can see and hear clearly the gospel. So that everyone can go from apart from Christ to in Christ and in Christ together. Ephesians is my favorite book about the church. Because Paul is teaching us at her core what the church is. It is the reconciled and reconciling people of God. That it is the mystery that Jew and Gentile are one in one body with one inheritance and one promise. Do not be discouraged, Ephesians. As I often do, I, um, I appreciate sort of Eugene Peterson's work in the message to, to, to translate, but then interpret. So every, every translation is kind of an interpretation, but that's a whole separate argument. Um, but in this paraphrase, one of the things Eugene Peterson does in the message, he just sort of interprets the passage. Sometimes I think he like, gets the spirit of it great, maybe times, maybe not, but uh, I think this is really good. Listen to how he paraphrases uh, this passage from the Greek. All this is proceeding along lines planned all along by God and then executed in Christ. When we trust in him, we're free to say whatever needs to be said. We're bold to go wherever we need to go. So don't let my present trouble on your behalf get you down. Instead, be proud. Be encouraged. In essence, Paul is saying, friends, Don't be discouraged. In fact, let these chains encourage you. Because my suffering is your glory. Brothers and sisters, we have 
boldness and access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you dare be discouraged by my suffering. If God has so meticulously planned all things, then is not my life still in the palm of his hands? If God brings life from death, then will he not bring something good from your present struggle? Worship team, I am finished. Before he prays, Paul just reminds his brothers and sisters of some really important basics. He just reminds them of his message. This is what it's all about. This is the message that I've been given and it's the message I am tasked to give to you. This message is my mission, to preach to the Gentiles, to preach to everyone the plan of God hidden for ages in Christ that has now been revealed to us. Don't be disheartened, don't be discouraged. Remember all you have in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, Paul's continuing. Let's pray with boldness and confidence through faith. Let's pray in defiance of these chains. Let's pray in defiance of our sin. Let's pray in defiance of the devil. Let's pray with boldness and confidence. Let's pray through faith in Christ. Now the content of this prayer will be this sermon next week. It is chock full of beautiful truth. But now that we have the context that Paul thinks is important for us to keep in mind before he prays, it would not be right not to go ahead and pray the prayer. You know, we've had the appetizer, let's have the meal. So let's just end this sermon simply by praying what goes ahead. Look with me in verse 14. Paul picks up the exact same way he begins in verse one because he's picking up the thought. The digression is over and we're getting to the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom we're praying now in this scripture, right? We're, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's continue prayer before we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, your word is alive. 
Your word shines like a light into the darkness of our hearts. Every bit of it is instructive. Even this digression before prayer. We reflect on the message of the gospel. What's at the heart of it? The, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to take us from apart from Christ to in Christ together. This is for Jew and Gentile. It's to take reconciled people and reconcile them to one another so that the heavens may see your glory. So that your wisdom might be put on display for a whole bunch of beings that we don't even know exist. Lord, we are wrapped up in a story that is so much bigger than us. Remind us now of that. Remind us of just the cosmic scope of this gospel mission. Remind us now of the global scope of this gospel, that this is a gospel for all people. Every tribe and tongue. And Lord, whatever Paul's chains metaphorically are in our life, whatever the things that can cause us to doubt his goodness, his power, and his presence. Remind us of what is true. Remind us of your power. Remind us of your grace. Let those chains encourage us. Amen.